Hey, this is uh, Will Fortaccio. Hi, this is Brian Azzarelli. This is Freddie Williams. Hi, this is Lieber Mayo. Hi, this is Matt Wagner. Hey, this is Tim Sale. Hi, this is Mudjid Flippis. And Christina Lear. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. Hey, I'm Duffy Wynn. Hi, this is Kevin Van Duffy. You're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 18. I'm your host, Dustin, and as always, we have with us... This is Apple. You got Josh. And we are bringing you all the latest comic news from the last two weeks. We have your book news for the next two weeks, as well as ten comics to review, bet books for beginners. And we are not going to be having a discussion this time just because we have so many comics to cover because we are trying to catch up so that we can bring you the latest reviews as soon as they come out. So let's jump into comic news. The very first thing we have is the sales report for comics in February of 2009. I'm not going to go through all of them, but Batman was number two and sold 111,000 copies. And then Superman Batman would be number 35. That was the next Batman-related one, Superman Batman number 55. As far as trade paperbacks, number two trade paperback of the month was Batman R.I.P. Deluxe Edition hardcover. That sold just under 7,000 copies. So, all in all, the majority of the Batman comics, except for Gotham After Midnight and Brave and the Bold, were all in the top 100. Ooh, nice. Why he wasn't number one was because he didn't have Obama on the cover. So, Batman still gets high numbers without the, you know, presidential gimmicks. Oh, the Obama one's winning. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know what? Batman did it without having Obama on the cover, so boo, yeah. Yeah. Alright, so the next thing is on April 8th, Greg Rucka talked about the question co-feature in Detective Comics coming up in June. He talked with Newsarama. There was an interview that was posted on Newsarama discussing it. We're not really going to go into a whole lot of details about this. Cully Hamner will be drawing the co-feature and... Like I said, Greg Rucka will be the writer, who's also going to be the writer for the Batwoman main detective story. So head over to the website, and you can actually check out the interview itself. So the next thing we have is on the 9th, the DC Nation kind of caused some questions. I'm going to throw it over to Josh to talk about this. My prediction of this is I think DC just saw that their whole plan about having us guess so who's going to be Red Robin, who's going to be Batman, who's going to be what's going to happen to Nightwing. Since everyone seems to be knowing what's going on now, and everyone's pretty much assured that Tim's going to be Red Robin, I think DC decided to throw a little wrench in our theory to keep us guessing. And it worked for a little while. So the DC Nation image was the sketched cover of Red Robin 2, and it shows Red Robin fighting alongside Robin, who is clearly not Damien, and it, it's pretty much Tim based on size and age who's also fighting spoiler, it looks like. So fans on the internet are like, oh, well, maybe Tim isn't Red Robin. Maybe it's Jason Todd, and what's going on? Now, Francis Manipool posted on his DeviantArt page different variations of the sketch and the genesis of it and the full-color version. Now, what I assume is he didn't know that DC was doing this to throw people off, and I'm assuming that DC was doing it to throw people off. So he said, oh, well, since they released the image, there's nothing wrong with me releasing the full-color one. If you look at the full cover image, which is released now, 
you see that the Red Robin portion, it takes place during day and the Robin portion is night. And if you look at the sketches, you see that it's clearly symbolic of Tim's past and future. Now, the full-color image was only up on the DeviantArt page for a little while, and all of a sudden it was taken off. And unlike the Tony Daniel, Dick Grayson as Batman image, not a lot of people got a chance to download it, but they did go on message boards and say what they saw. So that whole debate and that whole red herring lasted all of a day or two. And I suppose that DC decided, well, that didn't work out. We might as well cut our losses and run. So they po they did eventually post the full-color image on their blog, and it's now in the solicitations. But this stuff with the bloggers and the artists and the writers accidentally posting spoilers on their website, it's kind of funny because first Tony Daniel and now this. Needless to say, there's got there's going to end up being some kind of repercussions. A lot of you know we th we we talked about it in the last podcast about how the DC blog was might have been the reason to have them kind of restrict what gets posted and what doesn't get posted. But obviously, with this Francis Manipool case, it's uh, definitely not the case. So, yeah, and I'm just wow. speculating here, but I could very well be wrong. But I think that DC did this to throw us off. Francis totally misinterpreted it, and it just blew up in their face. And it's really kind of hilarious. Yeah, and. In this world of blogs and so many comic artists having blogs, I'm sure this isn't the last time we'll see something like this. No. <laughs> Everyone's human, so... <laughs> At least we know who Batwoman is and we don't need all this trickery. Or do we? Nah. <laughs> Alright, so moving on to the next one. On April 9th, Dan DiDio talked with the Washington Post, and there was a couple questions that were asked about Batman. Just to go over a couple of them, one of them was, does the fact that Robin Tim Drake is a contender for Batman show that he has grown up and he's a man now? And DiDio's response was, absolutely. The thing that's most interesting, the fun part for all of us, is that we're telling a story where the entire world thinks Batman is dead, but for everyone in the know who's reading knows that he's not. As it stands, the entire world does think Batman is dead, with the exception of Tim Drake. He's the only one that doesn't believe it. It shows a maturity level to him, but also how Tim has always been identified as one of the keener detectives of all the boy wonders. We always played Tim as the smartest. On a thinking, planning, and tactical level, Tim is the one who is the most comparable to the way Bruce acted and behaved as Batman. So that question kind of leads us to believe with the solicitations for June stating that Red Robin is a character who does not think that Batman is dead. It really makes us think that Red Robin has to be Tim Drake. Right. And, you know, the the thing is that Tim has always been planned out to be like that. I mean, he's he's been planned out to be the kind of detective like Batman. And he's awesome, and I think fans have, you know, think that he's, you know, that he's awesome. And him being Red Robin, when we saw, like, the last couple of issues within the Robin series, man, I loved him in that outfit. Yeah, I think it was awesome how they set it up, and how his characters evolved. And in the early issues, around the 90s or so, I remember Tim would always talk about how he was only doing this for a little while, and he didn't want to grow up and be Batman, but things change. Yeah, definitely. All right, so... Also on April 9th, there's an interview posted on Comic Book Resources talking with Jay Torres about Batman the Brave and the Bold. I'm not really going to discuss this really at all. If you want to read the interview, you can head over to the website just because there's not really anything worthwhile discussing in relationship to the main Batman stories. 
So moving on to on April 10th, the Source DC's blog revealed a couple new things about Batwoman. And they posted up a character kind of detailed description of the character and their outfits showing the costume of Batwoman and what Kathy Kane wears when she's not Batwoman. It's kind of interesting because what she looks like when she's not Batwoman really, to me, I mean, I don't think she's meant to look attractive, but she is not attractive by any means. And the image, after it was posted, was not taken down an hour later. (laughs) (laughs) Which is why I love Batwoman. You know, it's for once, what we're seeing is what we're getting. We don't have any of this mist and misdirection. That art, I, it's... I don't know about that art. And like I said, it can go either way for me. It looks really cool and really unique, but it's also really striking. I mean, it's either going to take me out of the story and make it weird, or it's going to be totally awesome. It, I'm still up in the air. You know, it, it, it seems like they put it out there pretty quick, you know, but they, they're always taking down what we don't want to see. What if they just put that to deceive us? Shut up, Apple. <laughs> <laughs> but the DC blog hasn't put anything up. This is actually on the DC blog, so they haven't put anything up and then taken it down a day later. So this is what we they want us to see, which kind of, I hate to say it, but does kind of play in with what you're talking about. Maybe they are trying to throw us off, but I doubt that. All right, so on April 11th, the New Wizard magazine number 211 Platinum Edition, I can't say it just came out on that date, but I received it in the mail, and they listed their fan favorites from 2008, and there was a couple of different awards that Batman picked up, favorite graphic novel for Joker, favorite villain for Joker, Batman was the favorite hero of the year, the favorite collected edition was Batman the Killing Joke, Shane Davis, who worked on Superman Batman for most of the year, won favorite breakout artist. And Alex Ross, one favorite cover artist, who obviously, as we know, did a lot of the variant covers for Batman during R.I.P. So, a lot of different awards. That's what really make, makes a difference is the fan awards. Right. And fans spoken again. Batman. Oh, it was Batman's year. And Joker's year, apparently, too. Oh, no. come on. It should be Joker all the time, so. Well, I, I'm, I'm thinking, though... <laughs> Favorite film was that based on the graphic novel and the movie? Because aside from R.I.P., I'm trying to remember what comics he appeared in in '08. I'm sure it was just based off the movie and the, the graphic novel. Not to say, I mean, you could also say Batman was the favorite hero of the year just because of the movie too. It was still because off. it was so popular. Academies. Even if it was just the graphic novel and the movie, it was it was definitely well deserved. All right, so moving right along on April 13th, Chris Yost talks about Red Robin to comic book resources. And this is the excerpt we're going to read. Without knowing who is behind the mask, maybe you can start off by telling us who is Red Robin. The first time we saw Red Robin, I believe, was in Kingdom Come. And there, he was an Elseworlds adult, Dick Grayson. It was an evolution of Robin. He was kind of becoming a man. He wasn't Robin, and he wasn't Batman. He was his own thing. And what costume appeared in Countdown, it was worn by Jason Todd. He had some adventures through the multiverse in that costume, and lastly, it showed up in the pages of Robin proper and was being used by the General, who surprised both Tim Drake and Jason Todd by showing up in that costume. As to who's going to wear it now is, of course, part of a mystery, but that mystery will be revealed in the first issue. You won't have to wait long to see who is in the costume. 
like we said, we think it's already, we already know it's Yeah, we, we don't have to wait long at all. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Define mystery here. <laughs> Alright, so also on April 13th, IGN did an interview with Tony Daniel talking about Battle for the Call number 2, which seemed a little, a couple weeks late, but either way, there's not really a whole lot to go over in this. The one thing that they... It's kind of interesting. Is they did they did they were talking about a lot of the characterization that is going on with Jason Todd and how he's basically becoming the ultimate anti-hero and not even really a hero. He's basically becoming the Punisher in the DC universe. But they kind of just went over that. And if you want to check out the interview, it's on the website. There's like I said, there's not a real there's not a whole lot of big news to talk about as far as that. Alright, so the next one on April 15th, Diego Olmos talked Batman in Barcelona with comic book resources. And part of the article read, if Diego wanted for a stage that might launch his name up a few notches in the minds of readers at home or abroad, he couldn't have asked for better helping hands. With the cover by legendary artist Jim Lee, who will also be on hand at the Barcelona Comic Convention, and a story by the hugely popular Mark Wade focusing on Batman's battle with a brainwashed killer croc in the streets of Barcelona. Batman Barcelona Dragon's Knight carries a high pedigree. So you can check that out on the site. It's not really an interview because a lot of it had to be translated. That's my assumption because they didn't really post it as an interview. Alright, so on April 16th, there was the 20 questions with Dan DiDio. First question is... Next question is on the on that concerns consequences for actions. I guess this is a good way to put it. The reader based their question on the context of Battle for the Call 2, which showed Jason going around doing horrible, horrible things, shooting Damien, stabbing Tim in the chest, not to mention that he has killed people. Yet, he's a regular character in the Batman universe. And while you can't say he's someone that Batman looks the other way on, there's been a feeling that Jason is afforded a level of tolerance by Batman and others routine, who routinely beat up unconscious for in comparison to minor crimes. And I'll skip a little bit part, but then he basically says, let's take that one from the beginning. you got to keep in mind Wonder Woman killed Max Lord. That affected the relationship between Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. This will ultimately be resolved, but not right now. That's a really long question. Going into a shorter question, where do you see the All-Star line moving forward? Grant and Frank's All-Star Superman has ended, and as you said the last time we spoke, once Frank Miller and Jim Lee are done with All-Star Batman Robin, which will take some time, that series will end as well. His response was, right now, as we said, Batman Robin is still running, and Frank and Jim are working on it again. So, the next one, whatever happened in the second part of whatever happened in the Cape Crusader, and they just said there was a big problem on the editor sides of things, and they're trying to make sure stuff like that doesn't continue to happen. And the next question, based on the art that's been seen for Batman number 687 and that of Batman Robin number 1, one could almost get the idea that there are two different Batman based on distinctive costume differences. Is that a possibility or an artistic interpretation? And his response was, I think Batman is the one character that lends itself to varying artistic interpretations than any of our other characters out there. If you look at projects like Batman Black and White and the various artists that have been working on the character simultaneously during periods where it was clearly understood that Bruce Wayne was Batman, it was always understood that there could be different looks. Neil Adams was different than Irv Novak, for, for example. 
And then the last question was, another Batman question, what's Tony Daniel doing after battle for the Kyle Raps? His response, taking a rest. He's working very hard on Kyle right now to make sure that it hits the schedule. We do have plans for him after this, though. He's going to need a bit of downtime. But we have his next assignment already lined up. Now, what's super interesting is there was a ton of people who presented the question of how come we haven't heard anything about Batgirl. That question was asked probably more than any of the other 20 questions that were answered, and yet there was no answer from that question. Wonder why. Oh my god. <laughs> Just at least give us a creative team or something, or a sketch, and you can take it off of the internet after an hour if you want. You know, just with something. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll go get the picture and save it real quick and post it everywhere. <laughs> the fact that it's obvious that he's ignoring it now, more than anything, and that just leads more to speculation. And either he's doing this on purpose, or plans have changed for the series, or I don't know. And this Batgirl thing has, because they're being so quiet about it, has got me more riled up than any of the other series. He, they, and they know what they're doing, probably. But come on, give us something. This is like, I've never heard of a book where like they hide the solicitation for so long. I mean, at least give us a vague solicitation. I don't care. Or who's the artist or writer? I think they're too afraid that that's going to give it away. It could, but I mean, you know, they gave away the other creative teams. True. All right, so on Thursday, April 16th, it was announced IGN released the bat titles that were coming out, and the solicitations forum for July. One thing that was interesting was Batman number 688 is not going to be drawn by Tony Daniel, like DC said at New York Comic Con. It is actually going to be drawn by Mark Bagley, who's been working on Trinity for DC for quite some time. Bagley, a lot of people know that he's best known for his 100-plus run on Ultimate Spider-Man, and he's, like I said, he's been working on Trinity for DC, putting out those books every week. So he's actually going to be doing three or four issues for Batman. But it's just interesting how Tony Daniel was originally supposed to be on the book, and now he's not. Right. So fans have, you know, speculated, is it because he got in trouble? See, I don't think that the blog would be enough to do it. But maybe what happened with the blog was one of many things that happened, or was one of many in a series of things that escalated? Well, what was interesting was on April 17th, there was an interview posted with Mark Bagley on Newsarama, and they kind of didn't ask him any kind of question about, you know, why was he taking the job instead of Tony Daniel. But they did ask him a couple different questions, one of which was, is Batman in his world a place you're instantly comfortable in? Or have you been reviewing and refreshing, so to speak? And his response was, I'm somewhat familiar with the Bat books. I will certainly be checking out the books a little more closely now, though. But if Mike Martz and his crew are as efficient as Carlin's office, I should have no problem getting all the reference that I may need. So, not to sound like a naysayer, but it really doesn't seem like he's paying attention to what's going on right now. I like Bagley. And I, I loved him in, you know, when he did Amazing Spider-Man in the 90s and when he did Ultimate Spider-Man. I just don't know if his style is the best for Batman's world. Yeah, I was wondering about that. It, it, and it's exactly what you said. Bagley has a certain certain style. His style was awesome for Spider-Man, but uh, I'm waiting to see how he does Batman. So 
you know me, I'm doing that wait and see approach. He does, he draws most of his women the same. Oh <laughs> well, no, early two thousands he did a story and the woman in the story was a reporter and she was a brunette and she's drawn exactly the same way that he's been drawing Lois and Trinity. Like you put them side by side, it's the same person. But I, I digress. <laughs> I mean I understand any of that. On to book news. There's only really one book coming out in the next two weeks. It's uh, Batman Resurrection of Ra's al Ghul. The solicitation reads, The unforgettable epic is now in trade paperback. Batman's immortal foe, Ra's al Ghul, should be dead at least. So how has he returned to haunt the Dark Knight? Find out in this intense tale originally presented in Batman Annual 26, Batman 670 through 671, Robin 168 through 169, Robin Annual number 7, Nightwing 138 through 39, and Detective Comics number 838 through 839. Ra's al Ghul is back, but what does his return have to do with Batman's teenage son Damien, whose mother is Ra's al Ghul's daughter Talia? It will take the combined skills of Batman, Robin, and Nightwing to get to the bottom of these mysteries and stop Ra's al Ghul's insidious plans. It's going to be 256 pages, and it's going to be 19.99. Not a Teen bad it? price. Not not a bad price for 256 pages and all of those issues. I'm guessing that it's a mistake, but I've heard the solicitation called Damien a teenager. Yes, that's what it says. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, if he was 13 at the very youngest, I mean that makes Bruce Batman for a very long time because he had that whole Tris with Talia was late in the career. I'm just going to guess that that was a mistake, because he's not even drawn looking like a teenager. You hear things I don't. All right, so moving on in the comic reviews, we've got a bunch of comics to cover. We've got two issues of Superman Batman. We've got an issue of Gotham After Midnight, Confidential. We've got two Battle for the Call one shots, Battle for the Call number two, two Oracle comics. And then we have the review wrap-up. So without further ado, let's jump right into them. We open up with Superman Batman 57. It is Superman's birthday, and before he goes to visit his parents in Smallville for, as his mother calls it, his Earth Day, because that's when he was found, he has to stop the prankster. He busts into a warehouse. He throws a robot head on the wall. He's not going to take any of prankster's tricks today. A bunch of the robots are going down, a bunch of guns. Superman's just busting through them. Prankster is acting like he's concerned, but he may be faking. He runs into a back room. Superman goes after him, and it's a trap. The prankster fires a gun, laser shrinking machine at him, shrinks Superman. Prankster is pretty excited about this, calling himself a genius. We cut over to Gotham City, where Batman and Robin, and we're assuming that this story takes place pre-Infinite Crisis, because Tim Drake's wearing the green Robin costume, are fighting some criminals, and they have to rush off before Gordon and the police could come, because apparently Superman activated the League's emergency ban. So he goes over to the warehouse where the battle took place, and takes care of Prankster pretty quickly with a battering. Looking around for Superman, they also get John Henry Irons, who used to be Steel, in on this with his science gizmos and stuff. They see a lot of the nanotechnology actually inside of Prankster, and it's a little freaky. They keep on asking where Superman is, and he says, well, you're the detective Batman, so start detecting. Looking around with the microscopes and stuff, Batman is able to get a read onto Superman's energy signature, and you see Superman in this microscopic world, and he's writing a diary with his X-ray vision. Even though it hasn't been that long in our time, or Big Land, or whatever you want to call it, 
where Superman's been, it's been 63 days since he's been down there, because time passes at a much different rate. And this was my favorite part of the book. When you see the little microscopic worlds, it's all the different colors and all the different scenery, and it reminds me of Jack Kirby, which the artist has said in interviews that that was an inspiration, the Fantastic Four Jack Kirby stuff. And Superman's going through all the stuff, and he finally finds a life form. Unfortunately, this one wants to kill him. So Batman pretty much deduces, all right, well, I have no choice. I'm going to have to shrink down there and save them. Everyone's worried about the risk. He says, if I don't do it, Superman dies. And Batman says, okay, John, shoot me on the last page, which is ironic considering what happened to Batman in Final Crisis. It's going to be well, part two, issue 58, Batman is in a little bat ship, and he's shrinking down into the microscopic world. And again, the art, it's pretty good. All the different stuff in the world, I'm loving that. Robin and John Henry Irons are looking, and they're saying, Robin's like, I'll come in after you if you need. He's like, much appreciated, but I need you to keep an eye on the prankster. There's nothing more that he'd love than to keep me and Superman straight into the microverse. And then prankster in the background hears this. He's like, yeah, it's true. Robin tells him to <laughs> shut up. So Batman, again, is going through the scenery, and we get, a, of course, Batman's dark, rooting inner monologue, but I'm just too busy looking at the stuff in the background. Superman is fighting some of the nanotechnology robot things, which are living in the microscopic world. Works on them with his X-ray vision, but eventually they kind of outnumber him, and his powers work differently down here due to the yellow sun stuff, so they overpower him. Batman crashes his little ship, and does find some life forms, and they take him back to where they're located, and they use a little psychic bubble to communicate with him, and they talk about how years ago the nanotechnology things crashed and kind of have been destroying them and messing with them, and Batman's going to help them. We all see in the meanwhile that the nanotechnology things do have Superman captured, and they're torturing him, and they have some sort of plans for him. They're telling him that he's the key. So... They keep on doing something to brainwash Superman while Batman is leading the army of the little creatures to fight the nanotechnology robots. And at the end, Superman busts through the wall. He's obviously under the control of the nanotechnology things, and he's pretty hulked out. And Batman realizes, well, he came down here to save Superman, but he's the one who needs saving now. That's to be continued, guys. It's all part of the plan. Okay, and that's going to take us into Batman, Gotham After Midnight, Monster Mash, issue 11 of 12. As we left off in the last issue, guys, where all the villains already had surrounded Batman, and Midnight is telling them to attack Batman. In the last issue, you had all these villains, you're like wondering, you know, why? Well, they had gotten shot up with a powerful serum that Midnight had concocted. Of course, you know, going off of Scarecrow serum. And all of them are fighting with Midnight. Well, Batman, being Batman, automatically brings a cure with him. And he's already, he's already getting all of them. And he's already, you know, making them well. And he's telling them, he goes, all right, I, I have all given you basically a shot. And if you're starting to fight me, that's going to be of your own will, own will. And I will fight back. <laughs> so I thought that was actually a pretty line. But Midnight's back there, and he had a very Joker-esque kind of look to him. You know, as well being a, having a skull, really. Looks like a skull for a face. They all go ahead and try to jump Batman. And during the time, well, now they're all cured. And they're, all, of course, turning on each other. Like, hey, why are you bumping me? Why are you doing this? And then Batman, of course, he doesn't want to lose focus. He's taking them out. 
as well as trying to go towards midnight. Midnight, of course, he's trying to escape. It gives you the the perception that Midnight's just running, Batman's running after him, but what Midnight's actually doing is leading him to the heart of Gotham City. And it shows the establishment of what was Gotham City. And what you see is that there's a, a Gotham historical site that Batman's sitting on, and it says Van Tassel Family Farm and Windmill. And it said, founded by Dutch immigrant John Van Tassel in 1761, the 90-acre Van Tassel Family Farm and Windmill was once the heart of Gotham. And so, of course, as we know, Midnight collects hearts. And so Batman goes there and Midnight just tells him that it was all, it was like all ruse. He meant to bring him here. And so him and Batman start fighting. And as they start fighting, the serum that Midnight has shot to the, to the villains as, as Killer Croc and Catwoman, he had actually had got Batman hit up with it too. So Batman was trying to already take it out of his lungs, but it's starting to have some after effects. So he starts seeing April who already had came out in the issue, but he was like, no, you're dead. And then Catwoman comes in, seems to help him. And of course gets away because she starts a fire within this windmill. And so, Midnight looks like he's burning, looks like April, but it looks like Batman's just like hallucinating again. It looks like Midnight takes off his mask. It looks like he's just a burnt skeleton. He says to Batman, let them gaze upon my true visage. Let them see, let the foundations of this city burn and with it, all that is corrupt and vile and unholy. In the end, it's just tough love, Batman. I wonder if you have the heart for it. And then it leaves off right there. And that's the end of Batman Gotham After Midnight, issue 11. You filthy criminals. Now we go into Batman Confidential, the last issue, issue 28 of King Tut. This one was written by Weirin D. Philippus, art by Garcia Lopez. We pick up where King Tut's course continuing trying to do, trying to cure the last museum curator and trying to do it all without Riddler or Batman trying to find him. And what you then find out, of course, you, we already found out it was Victor, one of the one of the gentlemen that worked at the museum. Of course, loved King Tut, but you find out why he was doing or taking Riddler's M.O. Because they felt that the King Tut exhibition couldn't come to Gotham with Riddler not trying to do something or trying to steal something from the King Tut exhibit. And so here is Batman and Riddler trying to go after him teaming up which is an odd team up but it kind of worked with their the, uh, within this book and of course you know commissioner even says you know you guys, he goes i see your partner and riddler's just sitting in the batmobile waving which is pretty cool so they're they're trying to go ahead and find lay with the curator that was kidnapped by to the common he has her lying down and she's like she's like pleading with him trying to get to him and then trying to in a way trying to show that she's on his side will batman and riddler go ahead and try find out his hideout of course it has very like there's booby traps around there and that was very cool batman and riddler then find him of course riddler then turns on him hits batman and knocks him out for a moment <laughs> and i say quick moment what it shows riddler trying to get on the good side of king tut well within that he king tut's going to go ahead and tries to stab batman Riddler's go ahead and trying to release the, the woman, but she kind of turns on Riddler too, locking him in the tomb that she, that King Tut just had her in. And so her and King Tut share a, a eye glance. Riddler, he already had been called to deceiver. Batman sees what's going on. He then takes his chance. He goes and leaves for King Tut, of course, gets him down, you know, beats him up. And then we have going back to where, okay, Batman and 
you know, kind of ready, ready to save the day, taking Riddler back, and then he's taking Riddler back to, to Arkham. He goes, Riddler, I want to know something. He goes, you could have killed me after the surprise blow. Why didn't you? He goes, we made a deal. And he goes, besides, when you tell a Riddler, you need an audience. You're the smartest man in Gotham, besides me, of course. Where's the fun in killing you? <laughs> so I thought that was a pretty cool exchange. And King Tut then has a visitor, and they say, you have a visitor, your girlfriend. He's just like, okay. And he still has his makeup on, like King Tut, of course, had the bald head. And the woman that comes to see him is Lei. She is taking on King Tut Commons Queen. And I know I'm going to murder this, guys, but I'm going to try. That's the, the Batman universe way we just try. <laughs> and it says, my queen, Akashan Amun. And I, I know I'm totally messed that up. She goes, please, my love, just call me Ank. And I like that better. <laughs> that was the last issue of this story arc of Touch 2. Riddle me this, riddle me that. Alright, so moving into the Battle for the Cowl stories. The first one we have in the sequence of things going on is... A one-shot, Battle for the Cowl, Commissioner Gordon. Now this one starts off with, you see on the very first page that Commissioner Gordon has been shackled to the ground and Mr. Freeze is standing over him telling him Batman's dead. Then it goes on to say 24 hours later, they're all, they're all sitting around the office, the police department office, trying to come up with ideas of where Mr. Freeze could be. So then they come up with an idea and they get a tip saying that he's over at this warehouse. So they head to the warehouse, they surround the place, Mr. Freeze comes out and freezes everybody, we assume, because they know there's nobody around. Then we go back to the part where first was at the beginning of the book, where Gordon's shackled to the ground, and they start exchanging some words, and Mr. Freeze basically tells Commissioner Gordon that he's going to kill a bunch of people because he's trying to educate the citizens of Gotham to better cope with tra tragedy, since they're not dealing with the tragedy of Batman being gone. Then we go back to the police department where Bullock and Harper are trying to figure out where Mr. Freeze could be holding Commissioner Gordon. Then we go back to Commissioner Gordon exchanging some words. They talk about different ideas about how much pain and bad things have actually happened between in Commissioner Gordon's life. Barbara being shot, his second wife being shot... Batman being practically murdered. As we know, he's not dead, but they just added to the list. Then all of a sudden, Commissioner Gordon somehow breaks loose, tries to strangle him, and breaks the chains somehow. Meanwhile, this entire warehouse, that they're whatever they're in, the warehouse by the dock, it's completely cold, and Gordon's complaining about how he's thinking he's going to get hypothermia. Then Freeze starts shooting his ice gun all over the place, only making it colder. There's a, a really uninteresting pun that they point out where Gordon is actually going to end this by using a book of matches. And then he sets off a gas main valve that Mr. Freeze hit with his freeze gun, and then all of a sudden this this building explodes and you find out he's not in a warehouse or a place down by the dock. He's in a cryonics skyscraper and Harper and Bullock see the explosion and they head towards. Meanwhile, Commissioner Gordon's like beating the living heck out of Mr. Freeze with a pipe. We go back to Gordon, Bullock and Harper standing on the top of the police department headquarters with the bat signal lit up 
Bullock says, I don't think he's coming, and he goes, that's right, he's not coming. They turn off the lights and they say, the only people that are going to be able to take back Gotham is us. We need, we're the law in Gotham City, and we need to start acting like it. So that's Commissioner Gordon. Watch yourselves, man. These guys are crazy. Then we move into Manbat. Now, this story starts off with Kirk Langstrom actually turning into Manbat in his laboratory, and he keeps hearing the. He, he thinks he killed his wife. He wakes up in the middle of the night, realizes it was all a dream, sees a message on his computer from Oracle saying that the network, all available personnel, code black, the network is needed, and he realizes he doesn't want to become Man Bat, but he, he has to help him because that's what he does. So he turns into Man Bat, heads down, ends up running into Lynx being attacked by a bunch of weird Joker thugs that we first saw in Battle for the Cull number one. Takes him out with no problem at all. Then Link says, you know, I didn't need the help. Then suddenly the Outsiders show up, which is kind of cool to see the Outsiders actually in Gotham in a bad book. The Outsiders that we've been seeing in the Outsiders comic, they're all there, and they're all thinking that Man-Bat is actually a bad guy and not a good guy. Man-Bat is convinced that he has to find his wife. He starts to transform, and then all of a sudden he flies into a power station and sees this big bright light and goes black. He wakes up, and his eyes are bandaged, and he's being nursed back to health by a guy who has bandages all over his face. We're not, we don't know who this character is at first. He finds out he's shackled. He finds out that his eyes have been burned. And then we come to find out the, the bandaged person starts ripping off ban- the bandages, and you see that he's glowing. You find out he's Dr. Phosphorus. Then he breaks out and falls through a hole in the ground and finds his wife. And finds out Dr. Phosphorus has actually taken his wife hostage because he wants the serum. He comforts his wife and then they, they try to escape. They, as they're ex- escaping, Phosphorus starts chasing after him and throws, makes the lights explode and starts throwing, I guess, balls of Phosphorus towards them. And he's, he's about to... Burns Kirk Langstrom, and then his wife is like, no, you're not going to do that. He holds her up, looks like he's going to start burning her, and then all of a sudden he turns into Man-Bat and takes him out and drops him in the river. Man-Bat emerges from the river with burns all over his body. The outsiders show up, and they realize that Man-Bat has to do something because there's just too much bad stuff going on. And he's loose, and he's he has rage, and he has to do something. So, there was a little preview at the back of the book for Power Girl, but we don't need to go into that. I analyzed your blood, isolating the receptor compounds and the protein-based catalyst. Alright, so, Battle for the Cow number 2 starts off with, down by the Gotham Dry Docks, and they're discussing back and forth who is going to have Two-Faces saying Penguin's taking out one person, and... Then we cut to Penguin saying we're positive it was Two-Face. And then they're convinced that, Penguin's convinced that this is actually somebody else. It's not Two-Face. There's something going on and nobody knows what it is. Then when we go to the scene where we left off in the first one, which was the Batman that appears with the guns, who just made good use of all those thugs by shooting them all, saving... 
Damien and Nightwing. Nightwing says, you know, you can't you can't just shoot somebody and you can't be wearing that collar. It doesn't belong to you. Then there's a really big interchange where you suddenly see the thoughts of this gun-toting Batman. Nightwing starts chasing after him, telling him that, you know, you can't wear the cape. You can't be Batman. That's that's a right, and you don't have that right. He shoots some batarangs into Nightwing's shoulder, and Damien decides, oh, you know what? I'll just kick him in the face. Well, the gun-toting Batman, as we later find out, is Jason Todd, which, if you didn't know that already, you must not have been paying attention all that well. He backhands Damien, who flies into some kind of industrial thing, and Nightwing kicks him. Jason Todd is trying to figure out his best way out, realizes that the birds of prey are approaching in their their plane, and says, I've got, I've got to take off, and at this point I've got to do something to get out of here. So he decides to shoot Damien in the chest. The birds of prey come down, as far as Black Canary and Huntress come down, and Jason Todd runs off. We come to Black Mask's headquarters, and Black Mask is telling Jane Doe and Garfield Linz that their part of the plan is, is just about to happen. And he explains what they have to do. Then they talk about Adam Bomb, who Adam Bomb is, tells Garfield Linz that you know he has a lot of respect for him because he tries to blow things up. And then we go to Gotham's West Side, which has Jason Todd watching an exchange between a cardinal and some thugs, and a cardinal being a cardinal from a church, watching and deciding, you know, this is wrong, and he, he just guns down the thugs. The cardinal ends up taking out some guns himself and starts going to, he's about to shoot Jason Todd when all of a sudden Jason Todd shoots the cardinal. Then he shoots him in the kneecap, he shoots one of the thugs in the kneecap trying to find out exactly what he needs to know. Then we go over to Gotham City, the in the underground during the su- in the subway tunnel, and you can kind of tell this is some something that never got cleaned up after No Man's Land. And we have Tim Drake dressed as Batman, and he sees a subway that's been smashed, and he goes in, and suddenly he sees some kind of makeshift Batcave down in this hole underneath Gotham City. It's got a back computer. It's pretty much it. It doesn't really have a whole lot more than the back computer, but it's it's kind of a cool layout. Well, Tim ends up tripping some kind of a self-destructor protection device that ends up blowing up the piece of rock that he's on and blowing him away, when all of a sudden Catwoman grabs him with the whip and says, you know, you don't look like Bruce, but you know what? I won't, I won't say anything, so don't worry about it. Then we go back to the Batcave where Damien's hooked up to bunch of hospital devices because he got shot in the chest. Nightwing's saying, you know, I should have never took him there. He's only a child. You know, I'm letting I'm letting Bruce down. And he starts to realize that maybe he has to become Batman because somebody has to. Well, then we go to Gotham City PD where the district attorney and Commissioner Gordon are exchanging some words about some people being ripped up into pieces. He's talking about Killer Croc. And they are wondering if it has anything to do with Oswald Cobblepot, as we know the Penguin. And they decide, no, I don't think this this doesn't seem like the Penguin's work. This has got to be something else. Then we go right outside the police building where 
Mr. Zaz has killed a police officer. Jane Doe has stolen the skin of the police officer and starts to head towards the police station. Then all of a sudden the police station just completely blows up and we see Garfield Linz in his Firefly costume fly out of there as the building explodes. Something must have happened because the building that Garfield Linz blew up was not the police building or Commissioner Gordon was not in the police building, one or the other, because they hear the explosion, they're about to leave the room and all of a sudden Jane Doe disguised as this police officer pops in and decides to pop a couple rounds into the district attorney and Commissioner Gordon. Well, then they say, you know, don't worry, Two-Face really likes you. The next time, we'll make sure that we have bullets that can go through your Teflon. So, what seems to be happening is Black Mask is having these villains make it seem as if Two-Face is doing this or Penguin's doing this. We have a nice little page of Black Mask standing with back the background of Gotham burning, which is kind of interesting. Then we see Nightwing, who has obviously come to the conclusion that he has to be Batman, standing around a bunch of bats that are flying around him. He drops his little Nightwing mask, starts walking towards the bat suit cases, and sees a sign saying, Gone Hunting, Tim. So his eyes get all buggy and he's concerned that something bad's going to happen. And we go back to Jason Todd's little bat cave and Tim and Catwoman are going back and forth about this is a creep show, I think there's something seriously wrong here. Then all of a sudden Jason Todd shows up, takes one of his guns and bashes Catwoman in the back of the head. Then Tim and Jason start going at it, going back and forth for a couple pages and it looks like Tim is about to have the upper hand when all of a sudden Jason says, you know, you might have the upper hand, but you have to realize that there's something that I can do that you can't. And he stabs him a couple times in the back, slashes him across the face a couple times, and eventually punches him in the face, blood's flying all over the place. And then all for some reason, there just happens to be a crowbar laying on the floor very close to where Tim is grabs the crowbar, whacks Jason Todd in the face, giving us some kind of a flashback of Jason Todd being whacked by the Joker back in Death for the Family. Jason Todd is just, at this point, we've pretty much come to the conclusion that he's completely insane. He's laughing hysterically while he's getting whacked in the face. And Tim's like, why are you laughing? There's nothing funny about it. And then all of a sudden he realizes that Jason actually stabbed him in the stomach, with the battering. And the final words are, just one more to go from Jason Todd, as we see Tim's body laying there, bleeding, the batarang hanging out of his chest. And that will lead us then into Battle for the Call number three, which comes out next month. Holy hole in a donut! But before we get to that, we will be featuring Barbara Gordon in Oracle, the Cure miniseries. And we start off with issue one, Barbara, since the disbanding of the Birds of Prey, has relocated back to Gotham City. And I guess she doesn't have a lot of money or Gotham buildings just aren't that good because her apartment, it's really, 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 really ghetto-like. And she's apparently messed up everyone else's electricity to try and hook up all the power source so she can have her whole internet computer system like she used to have in all the clock towers. 
We also hear some messages left on her answering machine from various people like her father and Dick Grayson. Apparently she forgot that she had some plans with her dad to go out to dinner. So she takes a quick shower in a scene that created a lot of controversy because, oh, how dare they show Oracle taking a shower? Message boards broke everywhere. So she's out to dinner with da her dad, and, you know, he's happy to see her back in Gotham again, despite all the chaos, but she's clearly distracted, and he notices that, so tells her that he'll talk to her about it whenever she's ready. She gets back home, and what we see is Oracle actually has her own group of hackers that she goes to sometimes, and I guess that that makes sense, because she can't be anywhere. One of them is called Cheese Fiend, and they're all looking for remnants of the anti-life equation, which you can find out about in other DCU books and stuff like Final Crisis, and they're looking for it in the internet. That's, meanwhile, we find out, remember, those of you who read Teen Titans, the characters of Wendy and Marvin, who were adapted from the Super Friends TV show? Well, over in Teen Titans, Wendy had been attacked by Rex the Wonder Dog, along with Marvin, who killed him. Yes, I am completely serious. Well, that ties into this, because it turns out that Wendy, who's lying in the hospital dying, is the calculator's daughter. And he also wants to find the anti-life equation, not only for the power, but to save his daughter. Where is this anti-life equation? Well, apparently it might be in this multi-massive online role-playing game called AltaVista, which is kind of a cross between Second Life and some other ones. So Cheese Fiend is in there and looking around for it, and Oracle's monitoring her. Calculator is also there, and he goes under the name uh, Babbage. Which, as some of you know, he's the person who created the, the modern version of the calculator, really, because there was the non-electronic versions. Oracle eventually catches on to this and realizes that, you know, he's up to no good and tells Cheese Fiend to get out of there. But it's too late, and I'm a little confused as to how this happened and if this has anything to do with Calculator's killgree powers that he got from the end of Birds of Prey. But uh, Cheese Fiend's head explodes, as we saw in the back of the Origins and Omens thing, and... Oracle sees it. I recommend a lobotomy. This is not good news at all, and story continues in Oracle issue 2. She has gone to Hong Kong to meet with some of the other hackers. She's attacked by some street thugs, but even though she doesn't have her legs, Oracle can still kick some major butt. She uses her staff and the parts of her body that do work to make quick use of them. Calculator, meanwhile, is still watching his daughter, Wendy on the computer screens in the hospital, and he's determined to get this anti-life equation so he can save her. So Oracle goes to her hacker friends, and they don't know that she's Oracle. In fact, they think that Oracle's a guy and that she's just another one of her informants or something. Now, they have a program set up, and this is really weird. Oracle puts on some glasses, and it puts her inside of the Internet, and I can't believe that I am saying that, and... There is a funny line. They said, wouldn't make sense. The snapshots, the web, the you've got to snapshot all of it. Feeds off itself. we got everything from depressing little goth girl blogs to NSA encrypted databases. The blogs are more interesting. And Oracle's inside this little internet version, and she's an avatar of herself that has a body. And, of course, her legs work inside that little avatar. She talks to a guy named Larry. They're going to trace what happened to Cheese Fiend, see if they can find what the calculator's doing with this anti-life equation. Inside of the role-playing game, this is weird, he's building little crystal things trying to put together the anti-life equation. And once again, Oracle's telling Larry, okay, you got to get out of there, calculator's dangerous, kind of like what happened with Cheese Fiend. But Larry, he, you know, he's playing the game, he's like, no, no, this is, this is cool. 
calculator finds him, attacks him, and this time he sees the trace of the signal of Oracle being in the internet. And he's in his Kilgree form, and he says, I know you're watching, Oracle. Is this what you sent to stop me? I'm going to kill your little hacker friend, then I'm going to tear you apart. Now, it's not clear if he can just see her trace, or if he can see her through the internet screen and actually knows that she's Barbara Gordon now, because he's been confronted with that information a few times, and still hasn't come to the conclusion. But in any case, we're going to have to wait and find out in the next and final issue of Oracle The Cure. Alright, so that brings us into a review wrap-up. So let's start off with uh, Superman Batmans. Well, when I first read Superman Batman 57, I had a bad reaction to it. I wasn't too crazy about the art, and I wasn't too crazy about the story, and I actually gave it a bad review on another site. In rereading it and looking at some of the stuff, I've come to appreciate a little more, and as you can hear, the art is something that I liked a lot. It was very Jack Kirby-influenced, but still, the first issue didn't really do that much for me. I am going to have to give it two and a half out of five batterings. The second issue, because it dealt more into the microscopic universe and did more of the stuff with the arts, I liked it, but it was a little weird trying to figure out what was going on with the little nanobots and stuff, and I did like the humor, and Superman hulking out at the end was really weird with the art, but all in all, I thought it was a big improvement, so I am going to give that one four out of five batterings. Batman Gotham After Midnight, issue 11. I'm really liking Steve Niles' writing in this. I know, Dust, we had talked about what, Simon Dark issues 1 through 12 were really good, or 1 through 7? Yeah, that Steve Niles? Yeah, 1 through 13 were good. So yeah, 1 through 13. You know what? Good thing this one's going to 12 because it's really good. So, because uh, I guess Steve Niles is finding his, I guess his, uh, you know, modem right there. But I, I love the story. I, I loved it. I, I'm not a huge fan of, of Kelly Jones by by no means. However, he does draw Midnight very cool because Midnight has a very Halloween Jason feel to him. And... I think that's one thing Kelly Jones does well. Is he can he uses a lot of black. I, I think that was pretty good. I'm liking the story. I'm liking the story. I'm not too fond of the art, but the the story's working for me. So I'm gonna go ahead and give this book three out of five batterings on this one. Batman Confidential issue 28, the last issue in the story arc of the King Tut, written by De Filippis and Weir, art by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. It's real good. I lo- I love this. Sometimes you just want to forget about you know stories you read before and just you know kind of like just start off fresh. You want to start off new. That's what Batman Confidential gives you. It gives you that moment to kind of just hop in and you want to read a Batman story and just get into that adventure. Weir and De Filippis. Oh man, I I think they did an awesome job. And not just because we interviewed him, but <laughs> but they did an awesome job. I, I loved how they became with the origin of King Ted. I like how they involved Riddler through this whole story arc. And you were always wondering to see where if Riddler was going to turn on Batman. He kind of did, but it was still kind of helping Batman in a way. Love the story. I loved it. It was just pure fun. That's all it was. It was pure fun. Garcia Lopez, I love his artwork. I, I I remember seeing his first artwork since the the Batman Returns movie adaptation. The guy has just been a powerful drawer within the comic industry. Though he doesn't get the acclaim like a Will Spertaccio or Tom McFarlane, the guy is strong, the guy is solid, and that's what he brought to his book. So the overall story, right, guys, if you're going to go ahead and just want to get into an adventure, have some fun, I highly recommend Batman Confidential, the, the King Tut series. And I'm going to go ahead and give this for overall funness, 
Four batterings out of five. Alright, so moving on to the Battle for the Cow stories. The first one we have is Commissioner Gordon. Now, the story was written by Royal McGraw, and the art was done by Tom Mandrake. Now, in the past, we haven't had, I wouldn't say bad words, but they weren't necessarily fond words for Tom Mandrake's art, but the art in this one is actually pretty decent. As far as the story, I didn't like this story. It fell out of place. It felt like they were trying too hard. It really just seems like this could have easily been a story that didn't exist within the Battle for the Cowl series. Just because, okay, Commissioner Gordon, you we could have incorporated him into another story, made him a prominent character in one of the miniseries or something of that regard. And Mr. Freeze, there was way too many puns as far as fire and ice and fire and ice it was just it got old real quick so for this one i'm just going to give a three out of five but that's mostly for the art not the story itself moving on to battle for the cow man bad i really enjoyed this story joe harris was the writer and jim Califor, I hope I'm saying that right, is the artist on this one. The art on this one, I thought, was really, really good. And the story, you know, Man Bat's not necessarily a character that is featured all that often. And the fact that they brought back Dr. Phosphorus was really cool. It just plays into our giant conspiracy of every, everything's coming back to Norm Brayfogle because he created Dr. Phosphorus as well. But uh, this was a really good story. I liked the placement of, you know, they had Lynx, who was in Battle for the Column number 1. You had the Outsiders appear. I liked the idea of incorporating characters from the other series that are going on, the other one-shots that are going on, because that's what makes a one-shot good. Commissioner Gordon, they didn't have any of that. There was no other characters that were featured in other series that played a part in that book. Man Bat... There was characters all over the place, and I really liked that. So, Man Bat, I'm going to give a 5 out of 5, which, as of right now, is the highest rating I've ever given a comic book on the podcast. Moving on to Battle for the Cowl number 2. This one was good. I can't say it was superb, but it was good. The art is good. Tony Daniel is a good artist. I cannot say he is as good of a writer. His writing is not bad, it's just... I feel like he's trying to cram too much in the story. You know, we have series out there that they give 12, 12 books to, like Gotham After Midnight, where they don't need to have 12, 12 issues. And then Battle for the Cowl, they could easily take the first two issues and make that four to six issues, no problem, and give a little bit more information about what's going on. Battle for the Cowl seems like it's jumping around a whole lot, which is understandable because there has to be a lot going on and only three issues. So I can't necessarily say that that's entirely Tony Daniels' fault just because he only has three issues to work with. But at the same time, I would want it not to be so much cluttered. There's there's a lot of characters that are popping up here and there that could easily be planted into some of these other one-shots, some of these other miniseries that aren't being put in there. So as far as Battle for the Column, I'm just going to give it a three out of five. Batterings. All right, and Oracle the Cure, issue one and two. First of all, very excited to see Barbara in her own series of any sort. I never really considered Birds of Prey her own series because it always seemed to me like more of a team book and other people were taking the spotlight. Even though it has the Battle for the Cow banner, aside from the beginning of the first issue, it really seems removed from the rest of the crossover. 
which I'm not sure how I feel about that. I did like the scenes of at the beginning of her reestablishing herself in Gotham. I like that she's going to be part of that world again, and I like the scenes with her and her father. The rest of the stuff, I don't, I don't know about this calculator stuff. When we last saw him, he was this big honking robot that lived in the internet. Now he's back to human normal, and they didn't mention his powers really that much until the second issue, and all this stuff with the anti-life equation, if somebody can simply explain it to me better, maybe I'm just, I just need to be reading it more carefully. And the events of the first issue and the second issue are basically the same. Oracle sends one of her hacker friends in, oh my god, calculator's there, you better get out. Nope, too late, calculator's got him. <laughs> A lot of people, and I'm not going to get into this argument again because it's had seven times, happened several times on the podcast and other places, want Barbara the walk again. If you need an argument for why she needs to, the second issue is a good example because Barbara can be written well, even though she's in the wheelchair, but you wouldn't know it by this issue. She just goes around, you know, from place to place, going on the computer to computer, and I think I'd like her to be doing more, and I think that she can be doing more. The wheelchair doesn't have to limit her. I don't care if she walks as well, but they just seem to be limiting Barbara, and the fact that this is three issues, I'm so, they, they probably could have made this whole series two issues, really, depending on what happens next time. All in all, I'm going to give both of them two and a half out of five batterings. Alright, so that's the end of the review wrap-up. Now we have something a little bit new. As far as our coverage for Batman the Brave and the Bold, we're actually going to be having them reviewed by children. So we're going to throw it over and hear a review for Batman Brave and the Bold number three. Raven the Bull. The evil, well, this evil villain threatened to kidnap the president, and they had to keep it secret. They being Batman and the Green Arrow. So they made a hologram of the president and used him, and then he started to disappear because someone was teleporting, and, and they went to this secret guy's lab. They being Batman and the Green Arrow. <laughs> and they got kidnapped, but then Green Arrow hit, kicked the quiver, and it, and it, one of the arrows lunged at him, and trapped him, and then, and he tried to switch Batman's body with the gorilla's body, they stopped it, and they ended up switching the regular scientist's body with the gorilla's body, and it brought the president back to, a, a, for a celebration with the Hawaiian president. And then they had a big... I'd give this, the whole story, five out of five batarangs. And there wasn't a single thing that I didn't like about it. It was a great story. And it was one of the best com one of the best comics I've ever read in my life. Alright, so that was Batman Brave and the Bold number three. Now, because we are running so late, no time for discussion, but we are going to throw over to Nick with Bat Books for Beginners. Hey there, and welcome back to another edition of BBFB. I'm Nick, and today we're looking at Catwoman Year One, yeah. which is written by Jordan Gorfinkel. Gorfinkel has worked on Batman comics through most of the 90s, and Catwoman Year One was published in July 1995. 
Gorfinkel also conceived and directed the popular No Man's Land series, which ran through all the Batman comics, and he also created the Birds of Prey series, thought to be the most popular series starring women since Wonder Woman, and it ended recently. Clearly, he's a person who can create compelling female characters, which may make him a good choice for Catwoman Year One. And the art in this book was provided by several people, including Buzz Setzer, James Hodgkins, and Jim Ballant. So, let's look at the plot. Oh, Catwoman. Catwoman, will you never learn? The book opens with Selina hurling herself out of a window from up a tall building. She falls down into the river, clearly in pain, clutching onto some jewels that she's just stolen. She manages to escape from the police, swimming through the river, and collapses on the riverbank. Through a monologue, she tells us that she hates everyone, including her mother for dying and her father, who is also dead. Selina is picked up by some sinister guys and taken to a very dodgy neighbourhood in Gotham, and left amongst some prostitutes. She uses this situation to lay low from the police, and her hair is also cut to resemble that which we see in year one. She says she feels safe where she is, and she begins to realise that she can get what she wants from men. Selina learns from a customer all the security details of the Gala Gallery, and heads out that night to resume her role as a thief. At the museum, she takes a golden idol. She takes a golden belt with a golden idol of an Egyptian statue. She is just getting ready to leave when she is attacked by a masked ninja. She is quickly overpowered by the ninja, who is repeatedly saying, A girl! in shock. The ninja grabs the golden idol and leaves, warning Selina he will kill her if he ever sees her again. Selina pursues him until she arrives at a dojo. There are more ninjas in there ready to attack her, but the sensei of the dojo stops them. The original ninja takes off his mask and is addressed by the sensei as Kai. Catwoman tells them she wants what is hers, meaning the golden icon, but goes on to tell them she also wants knowledge. The sensei seems to like her and decides to take her in and teach her what she needs to know. Focus. As Selina spends time there, she develops an unhealthy rivalry with Kai, who feels he is her better and is not happy with the situation. Selina, when back at her home, is suddenly woken by Holly, her roommate, who has told her that Batman has apparently appeared across the street. They both get up and head over to a destroyed building. Now, this is crossing over with Batman Year One, where a building Batman was in gets blown up by the police, and he calls a bat swarm to aid him in his escape. Selina and Holly go to investigate this building amongst the crowd, and Selina spots Batman leave amongst the bat swarm. We learn that the sighting of Batman inspires Selina to become the Catwoman, and she creates her persona and continues her criminal career. Later, Catwoman graduates from the dojo alongside Kai, who still intends to prove his dominance over Selina. At an honorary celebration for police commissioner Grogan, Catwoman appears and is confronted by Hellhound, who is Kai. Hellhound has already taken the jewels that Catwoman was intending to steal. They fight, and their fight moves out into the party, and we understand that Kai's hatred for Selina is because she touched the Egyptian amulet a year ago, and that interrupted a ritual that would make Kai's soul enter a spiritual realm. Catwoman swipes at Hellhound, leaving him stunned, and then flees, knowing that if Hellhound returns, she will take him down. 
The sensei then appears and gives Selina a small cat statue, saying that they share the spirit of the cat, and telling her that it is only the beginning for her. You make it so easy, don't you? Always waiting for some bad man to save you. I am Catwoman. Hear me roar. In review, I thought Catwoman Year One was interesting. Uh, I thought it linked with Year One very well, and certain events interweaved with Catwoman Year One in a positive way, and added to Batman Year One. I thought it was very interesting to see Catwoman's martial arts background, and we got to see a few origins of certain items, like her whip, for example, which she used when she was a Lady of the Night. I also really enjoyed the fact that Batman inspired Catwoman to become Catwoman. Because I'm always interested in the fact that Batman, perhaps he inspires these villains to become what they are. And I thought it was interesting in this book because you have Batman inspiring Catwoman and then Catwoman in turn inspiring Hellhound. Hellhound himself was okay, but I'm seeing quite often in the books I'm reading at the moment that these villains turn up for one book and they're dispatched very easily. It's not very exciting at the end. The artwork of the book uh, stuck to the year one style. It would have been nice to see something a bit different because that style, I've seen a lot of it recently. I felt it was an average story, so I'm going to give it 3 out of 5 batterings. I wouldn't recommend it highly. Uh, The characters are all a bit flat apart from Catwoman. But there are some interesting areas of her character that are revealed, but nowhere near as much depth as Batman Year One, which is always going to get compared to, and I think more could have been done with Catwoman's origin in general. Who is she? What is she? I don't know whether to open fire or fall in love. (laughs) You poor guys. Always confusing your pistols with your brothers. Don't hurt us, lady. Our take-home's less than 300. You're overpaid. Hit the road. So that was Catwoman Year 1. Next time I will be reviewing Batman 4 of a Kind, which investigates the origins and psyches of a quartet of Batman's villains. So we get to find out about the Scarecrow, Riddler, Poison Ivy and Man Bat. We find out where they came from and a bit about their psychology. As always, um, I will post a thread for this on the Batman Universe forums at batmanuniverse.net. You can tell me if I'm wrong, tell me if I'm right. What did you think of Catwoman Year 1? And you can even vote for it as well, giving it a review of 1 to 5 Batarangs. You can now contact me on my new email address, which is nick, N-I-C-K, at thebatmanuniverse.net. So if you have any problems or any general queries, send me an email and I will respond to you. So that's it for Catwoman Year One. I hope you join me for next time, Batman Four of a Kind. See you then. This is Nick. Now back to Dustin and the guys. Tune in tomorrow. Same cat time, same cat channel. Alright, so that one was Catwoman Year One. Make sure you pick up the next BFBB for the next episode. And we will move on to our upcoming releases for the next two weeks. The next week we have is April 29th. We have Batman Battle for the Call, The Underground. Batman Gotham After Midnight, number 12 of 12. Superman Batman, number 59. And the next week, May 6th, we have Batman Battle for the Call, The Network. And we mentioned earlier, Batman Resurrection of Ra's al Ghul. 
And then as far as the comics we are going to be covering on the next podcast, we will be covering Azrael, Death's Dark Knight number 2, Batman Battle for the Cowl, Arkham Asylum, Batman Brave and the Bold number 4, Detective Comics number 853, The Outsiders number 17, Batman Battle for the Cowl, The Underground, Batman Gotham After Midnight number 12, and Superman Batman number 59. And that will catch us up, and then we will be putting out roughly about... Uh, I'd say between five and six reviews a week, depending on what's coming out. But the reviews will become a lot shorter, and the episode themselves will become a lot shorter as well, because we won't have as many comics to cover. So, if you have not checked out the website, it is live. The brand new website has been live for well over a week now, as you're listening to this. So go over to the website, you can check it out. There's all kinds of new sections that weren't up before we started updating the site. Make, you can join our forums, leave messages and comments about the podcast. You can leave a review on iTunes. You can go over to our Facebook page, our MySpace page. We have a blog, a blogspot, which is also linked to the website, so you can actually view it right there on the website. Or you could email us at comicpodcast at thebatmanuniverse.net. We would really appreciate it if you could send us send some reviews on iTunes, just because we want to try to bump up a couple ranks as far as most popular Batman podcasts, so we really appreciate that. So that's about it for episode number 18. Make sure you tune in in two weeks for episode number 19, as well as tune in next week for episode number 31 of the Batman Universe podcast. So this is Dustin. This is Apple. You got Josh. You have been listening to the Batman Universe comic podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Take care, guys. April 10th, the source, which is the DC blog, revealed some image, some new images about Batgirl, or, on February, t- or, wow. Yeah, images about Batgirl, that's going to happen this month. <laughs> and Dustin, get yourself a glass of water before you, your tongue falls out. Savannah, you got a gold mine this week. Yeah. yeah. Just wait till we get to the reviews. Yeah.